Hello, my name is Thomas. <laughs> All right, I'm thinking into bits right now. We gotta, we gotta cook. I have one thing I have to say at the top uh, that I forgot to. It's actually important before we get into it, but you'll be happy. Okay, let's do it. All right. Hello, friends. <laughs> Welcome to. Good start. The Franco Files, 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 Files. The Franco Files. Franco. We're just Franco. Welcome back. Uh, we're here for yet another installment. We trust that uh, everyone who's decided to listen to these is also watching every single movie with us. So I hope you uh, all enjoyed finishing out with venus and furs last week and we're back and if you're not you're missing out what all the cool kids are doing because word is already spreading that more people are watching just franco movies in very cool sectors of the united states <laughs> that's right only truthfully, cool truthfully we've gotten yep. reports from new york i can't i'm not gonna name names on here but let's just say we're we're moving things along here moving things along all right before we dive in, there's someone very important I forgot to mention that we should have in the last episode. Uh, as we talked a lot about Franco really starting to flex and find his footing. And one of the people that is integral to that is a cinematographer he started to work with. And that's a guy by the name of Manuel Marino. And this guy was also scooped up by uh, in the Towers verse. Um, and legend has it that there's a movie from 1968 called Eve that, uh, the way the legend goes is that Franco, uh, wrote some of that and was going to direct it. The Joseph Losey film? No, not that one. I wish that'd be even more fun. No, this is who, who ends up making this shit. Robert Lynn and Jeremy Summers. Uh, because okay, so yeah, this is the Jeremy one that, Summers, the vengeance of Fu Manchu guy. Yep. Someone so he we actually Harry brought him in to finish it. He was okay. gonna bring Franco in to finish it, but instead Franco went to make Blood of Fu Manchu. But with Blood of Fu Manchu, that's the first time Franco's working with Manuel Moreno, and he would continue to for a long fucking time. And a lot of the most Franco things we talk about visually are really helped by this guy. They work great together. So with that said, shall we? Let's <laughs> just do it. It Let's is 19. Do it. Yes, it is 1969. And we are in Germany and a little bit in Spain. And we are... <laughs> Germany is about to take over pretty big for helping out with old Jess right now. Yeah, because he's still working with Harry, and uh, you know we're starting this episode off strong. This is, I think, this is my favorite of the Harry Allen Towers Franco collabs. Yeah, and that is Eugenie, the Eugenie. story of her journey into perversion, aka philosophy in the boudoir, uh, aka uh, in Germany. The Virgin and the Whip. Yep. 
which might have been a attempt to kind of capitalize on Christopher Lee being in the Mario Baba classic, The Whip in the Body. Look, the poster's right next to me. Wow. There it I'm, is. I'm swimming in it. That's that movie's probably on my in my all-time top 20. Oh, you you catch no uh, flack from me on that. Yeah, and I bet Franco was a big fan of that movie. Oh, wow. oh he didn't see it. Remember? He doesn't oh, yeah, know he... who Mario Baba is, never seen one of his films. He's very mum about talking about Baba, which is very interesting. <laughs> yeah, so here we are. Uh <laughs> start the timer. So with one of the best fucking movies ever made absolutely one of the best (laughs) not just in franco and this movie slays and i i welcome anyone to try to talk us out of it please absolutely uh this is as good as this area is gonna get this is oh what a sensuous film the pacing perfect the framing everything about this movie works in such perverse harmony uh it, it's just this is the one that i remember seeing that kind of really clicked like venus and furs like did it but like this is the one that like made it for me and rewatching it only has deepened my love Damn. I, no i'd lost my fucking mind do you know how many times i watched this even though i should have been focusing on others three in this rewatch for this because i couldn't help it yeah, I couldn't help it because you know what happens last week. We talked about how Desaad is completely misrepresented in Justine. In my opinion, he is not in this one. I think this one gets really close. It gets close. It gets she, close. It's, and it's in, uh, it's in moments too. As a as a whole, probably not. But in moments, it creates that beautiful thing that Desaad can do where, like you said, something is so sensuous and it's so beautiful and it tips into horrifying, but it takes you a second to realize it's tipped into horrifying because you are under its spell. And that's what this movie really gets. I think about. Yeah. Uh, Where it does differ from the original philosophy in the bedroom. Oh, oh yeah. Which is my, maybe my favorite of all of his. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so where it doesn't, in this one, Eugenie is not a willing participant in the actions that are happening. Maybe she's turned on by them in a subconscious way, but she is not the Eugenie that's going to be in philosophy in the bedroom. Because Eugenie, in the biggest point missing from that, the character of the mother, which we barely see at the beginning, we see her for a split second, but in the original book story, uh, Eugenie rapes her mother, gives mm-hmm. her mother syphilis, and then sews her pussy and asshole shut. Yeah. Which you sounds know, horrific, but like, but then again, you look, you <laughs> listen to like Enter the 36 Chambers, and then there's the Method Man one where he's like, where they're all like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna sew your asshole shut and I'm gonna keep feeding you and feeding you. I'm gonna take spikes and whack your nuts. <laughs> if you don't have a problem like with that, then you shouldn't have a problem with this. Also, obviously, uh, Wu Tang, huge Desaad fans. <laughs> yeah, noted, huge Desaad. 
<laughs> they're they're actually like bummed that what they've gotten famous for is uh, doing live scores and introductions for uh, kung fu movies. They wish it was for this movie. <laughs> yes, yes. So the, the the mother thing is fudge. The pair being uh, sibling step siblings, um, Madame Saint Ange and her wicked brother. They are step siblings in this one, where they're supposed to be actual siblings yeah. and uh the dad is more involved in this one he's uh a cuck ass bitch and <laughs> but then again though these things and there's other points that like the character christopher lee plays Dolmans, they're not oh. the same from the book it's not important to point them all out but this is a very different beast altogether inspired by yeah, yeah. we're getting we're getting closer to the vibes i guess is a better way to say it yes like we are because it's it's again that it's really honestly that feeling of uh opium yeah like the feeling of that that level of drug like opium or heroin before it gets bad when you are in that truly like just pure only id fuzz that comes before anything gets bad this movie does that to you and that's why I kept watching it too, because well, I love drugs, but this movie pulls that off if you give it the chance, and it really puts you in that state. And that's why I think it gets closer to the yeah. stuff. Absolutely, and also the way he's using widescreen in this movie really oh. helps, like point out her isolation from like a comfortable, safe world and the world that she's being kind of seduced into the little spider web of so basically this is about a character named eugenie who her dad is having an affair with this woman named madame saint ange and the madame played by maria rome mary talon's mm-hmm. wife uh she is like fucking the dad basically trying to get him in this while he's in this sexual writhing position to be like let me seduce your daughter for the weekend <laughs> but not even in like I'm gonna fuck your daughter or anything. It's just like I have a little crush on your daughter. Let her come with me. And the dad's like, "Oh, don't hurt her." Very wicked stuff. And for the for the naughty ones out there who don't like to rape and entrap people, but see the the allegorical nature of what's going on here, it can be deliciously wicked. I must say. Yep. So. Uh, Eugenie gets goes to this uh, island, another very Franco-esque island, where uh, she's brought into the sadistic games of this uh, stepbrother and sister. And even more shocking, the the mute maid and the the cabana boy, who oh, have, who've all clearly been used in horrific sexual ways, except maybe the cabana boy because he seems like he's in a pretty good mood playing his guitar but he's also the only one who seems to who actually voices moral uh objection to the fact that they so once eugenie gets there the brother and sister they're gonna seduce her they basically just drug her and no, basically they just do they drug her they drug and, her and then uh do one of the most this is the last specific plot thing i'll get into because if folks haven't seen it but one of them like god i guess i don't even i feel like it needs a new term like uber gaslighting 
because what they do when they drug her, then uh, then the brother rapes her, and the stepsister with paint <laughs> uh, eventually puts in one of these states puts fake blood on her. Um, comes a little later, but the second puts fake yeah. blood on her, and then. When she passes out after all this, they clean her up so that when she wakes up and is confident she has remembered this thing is actually happening, she doesn't have any wounds. And they can say, wouldn't you have wounds? And yeah. it's just so next level. And it's, it's so pretty- chilling. But again, they've already lulled us into this island haze. And so this movie makes you feel real weird. <laughs> I mean, it really does a good job of being in like someone's like lake house who you don't know. And that like that feeling when the lights aren't on, but the the lights shining through, like when she first discovers the Desaad's book and the brother finds it, that that's a very eerie scene without the menace fully creeping in yet. It's just in the the absence of kind of uh, a uh, a gentle feeling that house feels very foreboding mm-hmm. and yes yeah, so before they they rape her they uh there's a scene this is uh we're continuing our spot what directors uh took influence from franco we're back to david lynch and i the, the long it's, it's so overt the brother doing the blinds for an extremely long time stephen thrower likes to point out that he thinks it goes on for too long buddy like have you know a that? you need to have another glass of bitters and rethink that because this fucking too movie, long too long that's i don't even i'll let you choose any other scene in the movie and i would hear that argument more that scene is flawless and it's, it's flawless. so unsettling and so and again like we talked about with the earlier films if you want to shoot your movies in scope watch this movie because Absolutely. this this is how you use scope. And it's for that. I bet, I literally bet Jess was like, I have this blinds idea. I'm going to need two, three, five just to get all the blinds. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's possible because like he really, uh, oh, the space. there's too much space. It's so unsettling. It's, it's clear that Lynch saw this movie. This is the one I'm like, if he didn't for sure see Venus and furs, which he definitely did this one. He did see because that scene is the most Lynchian proto lynchian thing you're gonna see in most of these movies so yeah on top of that you have bruno nicolai's score the great understudy of inyo morricone who composed a lot of like actually played most of the scores morricone wrote he went out on his own he's one of the greats and also correct me if i'm wrong does this score have a little bit of also some things that might have inspired Someone else David Lynch knows, like Angela Badalamenti. Hmm. I would say that, yes, it probably does. <laughs> There's, Badalamenti yeah. was definitely, around this time, might have been apprenticing somewhere. Is he working yet? I honestly don't know. I don't know. We're not going to look it up because we don't have time. But It's fine. But this, it, it, it's, got, it's definitely got some echoes, to say the least. Um, I would say it does, and uh, and yeah, just Lynch's fucking love of the the evil that lies beneath affluence. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's ever been done. No, I, I don't think so. This is uh, yes, and eventually we're, we're going to stop talking about it. But I will just say within the plot, once she makes it to this island, not only is she being abused by the brother and sister, at one point 
Christopher Lee in a stunning red outfit shows up with a bunch of libertines and then <laughs> goes from there. So and it's also that's another moment that I think gets the sod very well because it's horrifying and also really funny. Moment to moment. I can't tell you why, but if you saw Succubus at the beginning of Succubus, yeah. It's it's key. So I just have to I I have to okay I I just have to highlight that uh one this is the church from Kilbo volume two that is in this movie that's right that's a good point yep yeah Quentin uses that and also the theme song is definitely a perverse reworking of the huge pop hit love potion number nine and that is (laughs) one of the most perverse ideas I've ever heard of this movie I didn't know that. I didn't think about that. That's well, I haven't. I'm not sure if it's confirmed, but it's the same. It's the same until the notes switch to minor. Yeah. I mean, that's a funny idea, also. Wow. Well, and Jess would be like sick enough to do that where he's like, they're gonna be drugging people. So let's let's use that song. What's that song about secretly? Interesting. Yeah. Well, okay. So so yeah, there's our biggest recommendation. Eugenie, story of her journey into perversion. Go check that out immediately. Uh, when this is all done and we've been through all these, it feels pretty clear that that might show up on my top 10 of everything we've watched. But we got a lot more to get through, so it could get bumped out. But right now, that's the from what we've covered so far, that's this is the top, top of the heap for me. Uh, so... That summer, summer of 69, he decides to, in dealing with Towers, uh, who was having his own issues, uh, getting some money from Liechtenstein, uh, the Liechtensteinian company called Establacement Sargon, and whatever. And, you know, was, was sort of dealing with things in that way. Uh, Franco had been robbed at this point uh, by a cab driver and uh, things are just kind of a little hot for him right now. So in the interim, before they do their next movie, uh, the next movie that they're going to do will be the bloody judge. But before they get there, they Franco decides to just toss off a couple of quick independent productions. One that we can't really talk about because it is the only Franco film out of all these that is truly lost. And that is a film called Sex Charade from 1969. Didn't premiere anywhere. I don't, I'm really not sure what happened to this movie. Um, according they to say it played once, right? Like it played once, I think, at a festival. It played once in an um, adult theater, yeah, in a and French porno so- theater. Yeah. And this would have been another Soledad Miranda. This would have been the first appearance of Soledad Miranda, which we'll get into Soledad. Um, <laughs> I'd like to get into Soledad, but I, um, I was doing the countdown. Yeah, oh boy. All right. We're going to start. So, um, so Sex Charade was apparently presented uh, to the film market at Cannes in 72 and there even included a sales brochure by the Canadian import exporter Cinepix, um, the company who apparently launched the career of David Cronenberg. And it, I, I don't know. Uh, it it might have gone to Canada, uh, but 
it's never surfaced it never released this is just one of those big like what the hell could this be uh, yeah, it's I, uh, I want to see it so bad i know we all do it's one of his super low budget movies it was privately financed this is not with towers it was shot in istanbul um he said the one like when he talks about it in that interview i believe he says like it was four stories like four short stories all lumped together one of them was solo dad yes but i'm so curious <laughs> we all are but unfortunately we will not know so movie's gone someone wants to find it let us know but oh fucking please he also started production um around this time in the summer on another independent production but technically i don't know does bloody judge come out does he yep. finish bloody judge and then he goes back to shoot nightmares come at night yep okay so before he gets to his next independent film he launches into one of the bigger ones of the harry allen towers uh tenure uh this movie probably not as highly budgeted as justine but it looks pretty fucking expensive yeah and that is the bloody judge the bloody judge about about a uh notorious evil man lord judge jeffries yes who was a a, a known witch burner (sighs) does this does this kickstart the the witch hunting genre when's cry banshee and witchfinder general witchfinder's got to be before this isn't it and oh witchfinder's in the 70s where is it mm-hmm. witchfinder is 60 oh uh, yeah so witchfinder general came out in 68 so yeah. so this well, is definitely trying towers to is jumping on yeah yeah towers is definitely trying to jump on the uh the 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 witchfinder general train with this movie and Fair enough. pretty good movie <laughs> hey it's a good movie i like bloody judge i think bloody judge is uh you know a beautiful looking movie it's it does suffer from i think a bit of a stateliness that doesn't uh. doesn't work for franco that well um but there's a lot to chew on in this movie that uh i don't know I quite I, I quite like, even though this isn't like the most uh special films for these. I think uh it's paced it's really for- a moment one, I think. Like, it's a moment one. Like the opening, I honestly wish the opening weren't as good. <laughs> yeah. Because the opening on that face, well, not a real face, but on the face of the dummy or whatever, um is so strong. And especially when we're coming out of Eugenie when i see that you know you get excited um but what does happen here that's pretty magical is (laughs) i i imagine it's after he got chris lee to do eugenie he was like you you in for some more torture stuff (laughs) Mm -hmm. and for whatever reason chris really was like hell yeah man no problem and so the the whipping in this one really goes up a notch and there's a little bit more blood than we're used to there's some like women in prison chain gang type stuff um we even get one of my favorite moments in the history of christopher lee where he's ogling boobs while he's supposed to be a judge and it's such a funny i'm sure he didn't know about it because famously franco and towers lied to him a lot 
like oh, yeah. they did with any other big stars. Yeah. Um, so I don't think Chris Lee probably knew that there was a, a like answer A and B back and forth between him looking at boobs, <laughs> but it's so good. Uh, and you know, it's yeah, like the the in between stuff is is pretty. What do you say, stately? Um, yeah, yeah. There's just a yeah. The moments we get to are so strong, and Howard Vernon comes back in quite a way in this as like a. Oh, like, the, the, the like hamming it up uh, fucking oh. executioner. But he's it's like young Frankenstein level almost. Uh, like for, uh, a, Blazing Saddles. Yeah. Oh, no, both. I mean, I also mean like <laughs> Ivor in Young Frankenstein. Oh, okay. I was thinking of the executioner. But but yeah, there is a bit of that. Both, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, feel, yeah, he feels like a Mel Brooks character until the actual whipping and torture starts. And like the, the, te- the tension between how silly it is and how tough those scenes get makes it you know makes it a lot easier to get through this movie and then we have i think the the first time you tell me if i'm forgetting anything but the leg kissing and licking scene with the mm-hmm. two women and mm-hmm. the score during that i don't know i i feel like my buddy was like all right harry you got to give me this Let he me might have he might have especially with howard vernon watching it yeah, that's a crazy sequence. Well, it, it's also around that sequence where y- you get to see Harry's wife, Maria Rome's pussy a couple of times. I think you mm-hmm. you get a couple muff shots. You get uh, you get someone grabbing the pussy, which yeah. as a, you know, Joe Biden heads, we don't agree with grabbing the pussy. <laughs> Just want to make that clear. But... Uh. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of pussy grabbing in this one, and uh, a lot of. Is, but that scene is genuinely hot, though the leg kissing and licking scene. Oh my god! It first starts right. It's you're just like, oh yeah, cool, and the score is really good, whatever. But it goes on long enough that you, the heat's turned up a little bit. I gotta say that you just beat someone into submission, and they start learning to enjoy the sweet torture. You know, if anyone needs to torture us, that's fine. Sure. I don't need to have blood drawn, but uh I mean I'll that's I don't mind. <laughs> okay. That's the difference between the two of us. That's true. But the ending of this movie definitely sucks, but we won't spoil it. Yeah, um, the ending is a bit of a it's okay. Down. It's still at the end of the day, this ain't a bad outing. And you can tell we're getting to towards the end of their relationship, you know. So that's clear. And also you know, the judge could be kind of a stand-in for the censor board, potentially. Oh, for sure. Like, there's a, weirdly, as much of it has this kind of, like, very solemn sort of professionalism to it, almost to a fault. There is a, a major undercurrent of yep. the anti-establishment running through this movie. Yeah. So. And their reaction when, without spoiling things, when they are dethroned. Yeah, but, but again, it's Franco, so he's not missing a beat because they're just dethroned by other people who are going to do the same thing, yes. and that's a that's a very you know apt thing for Spain. <laughs> so let's move to his next movie. We'll move on from the Bloody Judge. He decides to, in that same year, <laughs> like a couple weeks later, to just literally do the opposite of a production like the Bloody Judge. He goes around Harry Allen Towers and, and zero producer. 
zero producer. This was a completely independent production, no budget for this thing. And uh, it's called Nightmares Come at Night. And it really has only just started. I mean, I would say it really only got seen when it came out on home video. Like it did premiere uh, in a cut. It premiered in Brussels in January of 73. And that was it. Mm -hmm. uh, this was not the movie seen by yep. a lot of people. So, and there's a reason for that. It does feel kind of like, in many ways, I will say this. This is a movie that isn't bad, but it is something that I would say might hit you better when you see more of his movies. You come back to this one, <laughs> and I think it might impact you more. Because if you just go straight to Nightmares Come at Night, ooh, ooh. I don't, I don't know. That's a bad way to start or even breathe or even get off the ground. Like this is even your fifth or sixth. I, I think you're going to be left scratching your head. At this Unless movie. you're like me. And as you go on this journey, you find out that your favorite Jess Franco's are always what we lovingly called with David, the bummer Jess. But no. you can't get to that unless you're like Will who has seen pretty much all of them and then you watch it again. No, and you're it's, it's good advice, but I will say the only, the only challenger. And again, I'm not calling anything till we get, you know, over a hundred movies from now. Um, this is the only thing that's still tentatively above Eugenie right now is nightmares come at night for me. After this watch, I used to think it was like really, it, it was, you know, it was awesome, but I didn't think that much about it. But this watch, mm. this watch did it for you. Huh? This watch did it. It's uh, this movie, re it really fucked me up. And again, John is right. Um, probably shouldn't just dive in here. Because uh, yeah. this feels like a weird, violent combination of exploitation and hard art house movies which some do, but not many people do it effectively where it can actually affect you still. Most people that try to do that, it's awful. It's a terrible experience. Um, but I think this movie pulls it off. And before we get further, just to say to everyone, if you're watching this, make sure you're watching the version in French and not the dub. Yeah. Um, because the dub changes a lot of the lines, truly. It's like Studio Ghibli style where they rewrote the scripts to make them friendlier. Uh, yeah. To make sure you watch the, the French one. Um, so it really hits, but. And, and I would say that I was trying to explain this to, to someone, my viewing partner, I wisely put this on when they went to bed and yeah. uh, they got up and kind of were like, what is this? Yeah. And I was trying to figure out a way to explain it. And I was like, it's like one of those early Umberto Lindsay giallos, like where some people are trying to make our lead character go crazy, uh, like uh, So Sweet, So Perverse, or Orgasmo, or even The Sweet Body of Deborah, you know, those sure. Carol Baker movies. But I was saying it's like that. It's the chopped and screwed version of yeah. that. Yeah. Like, it's just... This is uh, slowed down to a dub-like pace. 
Oh, but like, goddamn, when you lock glacial. in, nothing feels better. But it's not bad pacing. It's not where the pacing's uneven. He is committing to this glacially dripping pace. Sure. And uh, it's a very interesting movie. I mean, it, it's shot for like no money. And I guess it deals with a woman who's a stripper who falls in love with one of her patrons who's also a stripper. Mm-hmm. I will say one thing. I always play the Lynch game again. There is more than enough to compare this movie with Mulholland Drive. Yep. And another another win in the Franco realm. This is not entirely, but there are moments in this that are, again, a very tender portrayal of a lesbian relationship. And the way, honestly, he shoots most of their scenes, even for him, is oddly not gazy. Um yeah, he's really fucking with the zoom lens on this one too. Yeah, and he's and he's really interested in the relationship. Um, someone yeah. put, I forget who, but someone said to me after watching this that in the true old style of burlesque, when a strip tease were at, right was a really long thing to go see, right? You go to these burlesque clubs, and it's not just like a couple minutes, right? You're, it's a yeah. it's a performance. They said it's like watching a strip tease in an opium den this movie and i think that's kind of accurate um because it yeah it just and it's it's pretty it's really quite it's quite heavy um for sure we're definitely in house psychotic women territory and lots of again like stockholm syndrome abuse stuff gaslighting shit uh i don't know but it god damn this movie just really really hits me and it makes sense that his zoom is even more active because what he's looking at is these like fractured uh female characters right like that's what he's zooming in on every shard that is shattering as their world gets worse and worse i think this Um, is someone under a heavy puff of opium yeah looking back on a failing relationship yeah someone who is exhausted with what has happened that was supposed to technically be the thing that would skyrocket them to success and happiness and fame. This is somebody who does something like in this movie where you write on the wall directly, life is all shit. <laughs> that yeah. also, it's a close up. This movie literally has written on the wall, life is all shit. Yes. Uh, and again, like we said in the very first episode, for Franco, the one thing in life that seems to give him happiness is actual love. And that can be love for a partner or love for work. But he's got neither right now, right? And yes. Soul Dad's in here, but they're not together. And this, yeah, this is him is after, the, after the divorce, after his first wife has been, you know, taken by Alzheimer's. Uh so this is a really sad guy making this movie, desperately trying to, I think, find some of that spark. And I think he finds it. I don't know if he felt it, but for me, he finds it, you know. And even the Colin all the way back, the it's not subtle at all. It really hits you over the head with it. But the the birds in this movie that are allowed to look at the sky but never allowed to fly can be both Spain and him with Harry Towers because they can finally see what they wanted but are not allowed to actually fucking get to it. Um, yeah, I don't know. And I also see a lot of, this is the first time I see a lot of Fassbender crossover here with Despair especially too. It's a very despairing film, and 
even <laughs> it even like you know kind of like <clears throat> it, it doubles up images from Eugenie and actors and it, it definitely tries to feel like a kind of a sad reflection of that he's also Maria Rome is shooting this movie and Harry's nowhere to be seen mm-hmm. so what could we potentially wonder about what might be happening there he got sucky sucked he <laughs> he got he got domed. Hard. I don't think so. He's I don't Jeff Maria, Maria Dome. He changed her name to Maria Dome. Jeff demands to go down first, I think. That's my theory of him as far as oral sex goes. Yeah, but he tried and she was like, No, I'm sucking <laughs> I'm sucking that owl penis of yours. That little peep, which again, we we can't wait till we get to the movie where we get to talk about that sweet little peep. It's, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if they were like I, I mean I don't know if like they fucked or something. It's possible. Maybe like a little flirtation happened. Maybe. It would I think the greatest thing that he did was to pull her away from her husband to shoot a movie completely without him. Who knows if he even knew that this was being shot? Yeah, it's true. And I also I honestly think the energy and vibe of this movie, I feel like maybe everyone was just like sleeping in the same bed. I think everyone was tired and sad and maybe no one was even having sex. They just like wanted to be near someone they didn't hate, <laughs> you know, like, cause this movie feels like that kind of thing where they are just desperately trying to remind yourself why it's worth it to keep fucking going. And Bruno Nicolai somehow also, as always, good God can nail any vibe. This yes, is such man. a tragic score too. And it really is a, uh, this is a, a movie that needs a really good score. And I guess uh, it, it seems like uh, Nikolai might have done the movie for free, too. I bet everybody did because Jess didn't have any money. Yeah. Especially with the next one, he kept having to pay for stuff because Towers spent all the money he raised for the movies. Yeah, yes, he did. So, so he gets a little... What is happening here that is the most important thing is that, well, not only does it sign a sort of recycle also some elements of uh, Diabolical Dr. Z. This is uh, a movie that uh, is kind of letting Franco get his first whiff of freedom. It's like when a cat, you open the window and they're like, oh, the outside air. I mean, they'll die if they go out there, but Franco is like, I am, I I need some of this fresh air here yeah. because uh, sex charade just vanishes. This movie almost vanishes. So it's lucky this movie was ever found. I mean, even the surviving elements of it look pretty battered to hell. So it helps it, though. And he probably shot it underexposed too. And, you know, I mean, it's just a, it's an interesting film and you should really come back to it. I can't say it's great yet, but I have, I'm more and more every time I see it, I'm a more intrigued and I will get you. <laughs> well, I'll come back to this one, but oh, I know, I know. So, so, um, yeah. So once he finishes his time with Ari Allen towers, he's, well, we'll get to that, but he's going to get his real shot of freedom. So this is him really starting to get the knack for becoming the Jess Franco that made us start this podcast. Now here's uh, the next movie 
is the Jess Franco that we're not after <laughs> on this podcast. Yet, as much as people like to write this one off, there's still a lot of Franco-isms in this movie, even yeah. though they don't work so well. And that is the most famous of all Jess Franco movies. Dracula. Count Dracula. Uh, or also known in Germany as At Night When Dracula Rises, which is a great title. Especially when it's in German. Will you try yeah. to say it in German? It sounds Not so when Dracula Urquacht. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Poetry motion. Yeah. So this movie shoots in October through all the way to December in 1969. It's... Uh, you know, comes out the next year. This one doesn't take a long time to before it comes out. It uh, it it takes about a year for its premiere in Barcelona. But this movie is uh, ooh, so much. The movie isn't so much as important as what this sets up for uh, Franco. And this movie was touted as this is going to be the most faithful adaptation of Dracula I've ever seen. It was sold that way. That is how it got going. Now, he's also doing this because he hates the Hammer movies for some reason, which, you know what? I will admit. He doesn't like, he doesn't like formality even when it's successful, you know? Yeah, like, I mean. Formalism, rather, sorry. Like, he doesn't like, yeah, I don't think he likes when people do what they're supposed to do in how they shoot their movies. You know, I think that's why I like yeah. Orson Welles so much, because he to his own demise, refused to ever just be like, yes, this logically would be perfect for this shot. And then this would be perfect for that. And even, you know, we love a lot of them. It's not like Terrence Fisher, but I think Franco's like allergic to that. He's like, why the fuck did you not pick your camera up and just like run towards everyone just to see what would happen? <laughs> right. I mean, and, you know, that is definitely something that he's thinking, but it's funny because it's like, I wonder how many Hammer films he saw because it's like, you're really telling me like, cause there, some of them are pretty stiff. I mean, you watch some of them now and there's a stuffiness to some of those hammer films, but you know, brides of Dracula. I don't know. Not a very yeah. stuffy movie. The Gorgon. I mean, all those Terrence Fisher movies, as if you well, even, even like I thought of, I was like, I wonder if Franco loves the snorkel. Like I thought of that one. I was like, that's a movie that Franco could fuck with. I love maybe he fuck, Maybe he <laughs> the snorkel. Awesome. <laughs> but at this time you know he hated he hated these movies he hated horror of dracula all that stuff so he was like i'm gonna make the movie that is not only the most faithful adaptation but it's gonna fly in the face of the hammer movies and not only that i'm getting christopher lee to come in who's purportedly unhappy with how hammer is portraying him as dracula and i am gonna give him the chance of a lifetime to to be the great count dracula well, unfortunately, the first 20 minutes are something interesting, and then the movie becomes somehow, it just resembles a Hammer movie. I don't know how else to put it. Somewhere but along the way, the plan failed. The budget, man, and it's because, I think, so I was listening to the interview today, and Franco says what happened is that they were nervous because Christopher Lee even mentioned that the budget better be significant, right? Because he wants this to be a thing. 
as always, Harry had already pissed away so much of the money. So he spent all of the money remaining and they set up a schedule so they could shoot everything with Christopher Lee really fast. And they had all these sets set up. So they looked like a big budget movie, shot all the Chris Lee shit. And then Towers takes off and is like, yeah, finish it up. And so Jess literally starts putting what little money he has into it to try to finish it. And that's how we end up with shit like straight up made of paper bats. <laughs> yeah, it, it's 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 very unfortunate. Um, there's uh, uh, the beginning is really interesting with the coach going through the 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 woods. And I like how narrow the path is. I think that's a very dreamy effect even though the wolves are clearly just dogs but it's you know it's there's a dreaminess to this coach going through what looks barely going off on a path a road that looks barely big enough to like be a walking trail it almost looks like they're kind of like just going through the middle of the forest yeah yeah super strong really super interesting beautiful imagery and you're like take me there yeah please and then it it just doesn't happen and uh things like you almost wonder if he started intentionally pulling things away from it because the van helsing character the great you know a foil and hero who goes against his his huge arch nemesis dracula this has nothing to do in this movie and actually doesn't really like he doesn't even show up for the final battle. Nope. Well, there really isn't a battle. It's not even a battle. It's not a battle. It's pretty much, it gets to the point where like Soledad's doing great just because she oozes charisma and that's just who she is. Uh, it's kind of a fun, stupid idea to. She's get... a great Lucy. She's a perfect. Oh, Lucy. she's great. She's great. Yeah. But then you have like, what on paper is a great idea with Kinski playing this character, but do you know what, why his character is like that? <laughs> they lied to him because while they were shooting, uh, um, fucking what's the last one he was in, uh, when he was playing Desaad. Oh, and no, he was in Venus and Furs was the last one he was in. Yeah. 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 So he doesn't speak Franco's, much of that either. Yeah. But Franco's talking about how, how much in this interview he's talking about how much he loves Klaus Kinski and he's like he wasn't actually that difficult you just had to listen to him and give him what he asked for and I loved him right so he's telling the story and he goes but sometimes you had to lie to him to get what you needed because he refused to be in a Dracula movie so I told him that I wrote this movie about a uh, mental hospital and we brought him before everyone else and shot all his scenes <laughs> of him playing Renfield but now it all makes sense why like the performance is so subdued and strange because they couldn't tell him who was playing because he wouldn't have done it <laughs> oh, and then we just we can't I mean I can't walk past without bad taxidermy is one of my favorite things in real life I love like if I was rich that's one of the things I would collect is badly done taxidermy Franco here gathered all of them and turned them a little bit every time the camera moved for them to attack, I guess. And that's one of the craziest, like, $3 scenes I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
our buddy, our poor buddy. This movie, it always hurts me to watch it because I can just feel how sad and embarrassed he is. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely not happy with the way this went. And but that is the thing that is going to really propel him. I mean, there's things he's able to do. I mean, the Bruno Nicolai score is great. There's Lucy's bedroom is one of the greatest sets in the whole thing. Yep. But it's just literary adaptations are not where he is going to. Well, let me say strict literary adaptations are not his bag. And they're never going to be his bag. So he's going to. Doing something else to him might work out. He's going to do something else to him very soon. So we'll get to what he does with this story. Oh, we're dying. And we got to move it along so we can get to that. So when he does make the best Dracula adaptation in history, teaser. Okay. Well, uh, unfortunately, we have to get through another, this a near masterpiece before we get to that. Near. Uh, yeah, this is a masterpiece because okay. this is the first movie that we are going to see. Yeah, all right, it's a masterpiece. I'm still, just, I love to be mysterious, you know. I want people to figure this out for themselves. Okay, yeah. good God, over there, I'm looking at you over there, just pleased with yourself. <laughs> so we arrive in 19, uh, still 1969. Or no, 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 we're 1970 now. Oh wow, what a what a stooge this guy. I wish he'd make more movies. I know. Yeah, yeah literally after they shoot this movie, it is another couple weeks, January 1970. Because he, he has to to shake this shit off. He's like, I'm gonna do another zero producer movie. Anyone anybody in? And everyone was. And this is the zero producer movie that probably gave him the wings to fly. That let him say, it's time. I think this is exactly what I want to do. So goodbye, Mr. Harry and your beautiful wife that I probably ran through while you were busy you know, drinking port one night. I still don't think so. Don't okay, but he, but he did with his mind and words. I don't know. I feel like they were sad buddies together. The more I'm the this journey had a closeness that I bet that she didn't have with her husband. Well, yeah, but that's what I mean. But I don't think it was even necessarily like physically sexual, maybe mentally. Mentally. Yeah. Sure. I don't know. Whatever, whatever the case may be, they had a closeness. And he was probably sad to say goodbye to Maria, but uh you have to if you want to move on to the next stage of your life and you want to start what you have in and you you got soledad finally in a starring role soledad miranda one of the sexiest most beautiful actresses that has ever graced the screen sure. we're just gonna have we're gonna spoil this right now uh she doesn't live too long she lives about another year actually she lives probably less than a year she dies in 1970. Yep. And that's no, when they shoot, they shoot all their movies together in one year. And within that one year, she also dies. Yeah. Yeah. She dies in a car accident. Yep. And Can I do uh, her quick background, real quick. Yeah. Super yeah. Fun. Okay. So, Ed Miranda was a flamenco child star because yep. her family was very poor and she had to work to support them. 
So she did that. She was very successful. Um, she again oozes charisma, an insanely beautiful human being. Um, but she's working when she's like a kid. Lucky for her, she moves in with the uh, soon-to-be enormous Spanish pop star Michaela, uh, which is why she ends up in Tabarin, the really early Just Franco we talked about when you see her for a second. Um, and she starts acting. She's in lots of stuff, musicals, whatever, some dramas. None of them are all that interesting, at least the ones that I've watched. Um, They're not. And at the same time, she also becomes... Uh, a star of what is called yay yay in spain um which is like an awesome super infectious pop style i would say um and then she had a kid their husband she retires for a year or two years takes two years off to raise that kid and then gets an offer to be in 100 rifles and is like shit okay and in that movie, the first time, someone's like, hey, are you cool with doing nude scenes? And she was like, yeah, dude, whatever. Good to go. And she really had fun. She was excited. And she was like, all right, told her husband, I'm going to give this one more go and starts to be in these Franco movies. And this crazy moment, uh, allegedly, the story goes, uh, she and her husband were driving on the way to meet with Franco and Harry Allen Towers to sign a 10 picture deal with Harry that would solidify uh but unfortunately car crash on a windy road and she passes away and you know world crumbles and franco goes his own way and we use we lose soledad miranda who by the way was 27 when she died which is nuts she had already been a star in like three different ways in that short life yeah and i don't know if you're you're going to see a beautiful woman in this movie, but you're not going to see the Soledad that we're describing maybe until the next movie, because no. in this movie, though she is, you know, stripping at the very beginning of this movie, this is a, this is one dark ass fucking movie. Let's put it that way. This, this is, a, is if you like stripped down, brutalize your soul, serial killer movies then here's the one you maybe haven't seen that is the best of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think that this movie, playing the uh, director game again, I would say this movie very clearly influenced two Lars von Trier movies, the Nymphomaniac movies, very clearly. And also, even more clearly, The House That Jack Built. Yep. But we'll fight about that sometime because he blew it. <laughs> I like those movies. Will doesn't. That's the end of that debate for now. It doesn't matter. It doesn't doesn't matter. matter, But there is a there is a modernness to this movie that honestly, it does shock me that this movie was made in 1970. Yeah, it shocks me that this was allowed to be seen. This is such a deeply cold, cold and unsettling movie. On every level, down to, I mean, all right. So we'll. we'll Let me we'll, say the title. This is Mar- the Marquis de Sade's Eugenie. This is his second time tackling yeah. this material, and he's doing it in a very different way this time. And you can call it Eugenie de Sade or even stupider, de Sade 2000. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite. I want that poster, though, because it's horrifying. That is uh, crazy. Uh, yeah, this is about a woman, uh, well, a child. She's a child playing it's a child. child. She is a teenage girl 
living with her father, who is a Desaad-like, or at least he fancies himself. He's a scholar of eroticism. Yeah, and writes his own, supposedly. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's where we start. And Her mother died when she was born. Mm -hmm. Mother's gone. So he's... Find out why if you watch the movie. (laughs) Yes, you will. And he's, uh, again, not engaging with what actually happens to Eugenie's mother uh, in this one. But he is actually now doing right by... (laughs) the father and daughter relationship that is in the original story. So yeah. And we get the way this movie starts, lets you know exactly what you're in for. And again, continues what we started to talk about with Jess playing uh, different characters where he's exploring what it means that people want to watch this stuff with him. And also what it means that he wants to make it and be a part of it this kind of subject matter so the film starts with jess franco playing uh uh is he like he's like a detective reporter he's like uh, a detective wannabe sadist named yeah. Tanner, who is watching a snuff film when this movie opens he's watching a snuff film and that's how it begins with our well, two we'll with our two late at with our two lead actors that with we're gonna see soledad and uh uh what's molar what's his name uh Paul Muller. Paul Muller. And uh, Alice Arno? Yes. So they are engaging in a threesome with this woman at the beginning of it. And it, yeah, it just turns into a a snuff film. And what's so beguiling about it is uh, you have to ask a lot of questions uh, because Franco's watching it from what looks like a screening room. Mm -hmm. And the reality of the thing is, is that you start to think like there's three people in here at one point there's a fourth person holding the camera mm-hmm. now that could be a interesting mystery plot point but it also deepens the point of the movie because that's actually franco holding that camera yep. and he's watching it so whatever the movie it's setting you up for a very meta reflective idea of the nature of watching violence of wanting violence of directing violence and again, as we've said already, this is a, another insane moment where if Brian De Palma wants to keep pretending he's also not a Jess Franco fan, we ever get you on stage, but after we after we worship you and do a great Q&A, we, at the end, we will say, admit to everyone right now how much you love Jess Franco. This movie influenced Body Double. Tell us right now, Brian De Palma. Yeah, I mean, we'll get you, Brian. We love you to death, but... We also know, like Lynch, you love to keep these things uh, close to your chest. And much like Franco, you don't really want to reveal your sources. It is fun that we're fighting so hard to get people to admit how much of an influence Franco is when Franco fought so hard to not admit that anyone was an influence. Yeah, it's pretty pretty funny. So then the movie switches to um, this Tanner character after he... Tell, basically wipes his hands the projectionist almost to say like i've seen enough cut this footage off the movie then goes to find soledad miranda beaten uh, pretty savagely in a bed and he sits there and asks to hear her story he is for sure doing the nymphomaniac thing or lars von Trier is doing the eugenie okay. thing it's so it's so like clear so yeah. She makes it, he makes a deal with her that if he will tell 
if she will tell him the story of her affair with her father and her father's murderous tendencies, he will kill her to end her suffering. So the movie lapses into flashback of a very wintry, very different for Franco, very wintry and cold. And it, it does make the movie creepier because you can feel this father and daughter alone in this house in the cold and all they have is each other. And now the house is getting heated with this perverse eroticism when the Eugenie discovers uh, a book by Desaad in her father's study, the father, she then tries to seduce the father. The father kind of doesn't, he kind of recoils, but then the next day he leaves her a note saying he wants her to read more Desaad. And when they come home, they will basically consummate their love affair. We don't really ever see them have sex though, until no spoiler. Oh, all right. All right. Well, he gets her to go on a perverse path with him that I think, you know, if you look at it literally, it's a father getting his daughter to go murder people with him. But if you look at it allegorically, metaphorically, however you want to put it, I'm not going to define those properly. You could say, look at it sodaphorically. Sodaphorically, yes. It's uh, an older lover with their younger lover and they're... They might be uh, engaging in a bit of uh, the libertine lifestyle. I, I mean, there's a lot being said with this because there's a is disturbing and dark and ugh, uncomfortable. This is there is a fucked up, strange sexual arousal happening through this movie, but it doesn't ever tip into eroticism or pornography. Even it it stays there just humming like a little frequency which is worse it's so awful it makes you feel bad it makes you feel truly bad watching this movie it makes you slowly feel really sick to your stomach this isn't a movie that yeah it's not gonna like give you headaches watching this movie but this is a this is a movie that should have been made in like by an independent filmmaker in like 1990s or something like that. It's just wild. Like, and, and again, that this isn't, I think it will be, but I'm not, I, you know, I'm prone to hyperbole, but I really mean it here. When, when people do bring up movies about serial killings, if this isn't at the top with whichever one you want to say, it could be fucking angst or Henry Porter, a serial killer. I don't care. Yep. If this isn't up there, I don't I don't know what else is. This is like one of the most just incredibly well constructed movies. And I can't even say like this because it's not really like anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really isn't. It, this is a movie that is kind of forges its own ground uh, yeah. in the most original way possible. Yeah. And yeah, it's the Citizen Kane of father daughter incestuous uh, murder relationships. So. <laughs> <laughs> Orson was very proud when he when he sent him this one. Yeah, yeah, I love like, it. Hey, Orson, check this one out. And the music, Nick, Bruno Nikolai's score, these angelic <sighs> cooings and hummings over it just oh, it just makes the movie so spellbinding, but also so horrifying and unsettling. And you know, like yep. it, 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 this is just a uh, this is just. We're, we've hit masterpiece level. Whoa, we've talked too much. We've hit masterpiece level <laughs> with this movie. 
and yeah, it's, really, it's out of control it's it's really yeah i, right, I, okay, I wait, let's quit we should just quit talking about it maybe. yeah let's go because we got to rip we got to rip through this one and we could talk for about it for 10 hours oh boy so there you go that, that's as that's as good of a, a thing we're gonna get for a movie go see this eugenie is where, where can you find this well I, I know this is a little harder to find it, it pops up on youtube periodically okay um, check there i think all the the home video that did exist is gone hopefully someone can finally get this puppy out there proper soon if not maybe we'll show it somewhere we'll see yeah oh we are going to show this soon yeah. so if anything he has shed his uh sort of very um polite trappings of the harry allen towers movies and he has finally got his his taste and yeah. he, he got it out it's one of the like craziest excisions of toxicity that you can watch this is truly someone saying like i have to get everything out of me uh, yeah and also the when they're going to hide in plain sight i just have yeah. to note their costumes some of the funniest costumes which clearly that is the only time in this movie where i think franco is having a little laugh because the rest of the I mean, movie, there's still a laugh. Laugh. oh but they're so muffled and they're so like <laughs> yeah yeah but when they when they uh put on their outfits to go commit a crime it's oh but then the editing during we won't spoil them but the way that all the killings are edited also masterclass the fuck yeah. out of here that first one Ugh. all right let's cook we gotta go we gotta so, cook. finally the last of our episode today oh boy i don't know if we can leave it on a this is gonna this is gonna really if eugenie was tough enough this is gonna be really show how well will and i can condense uh thoughts because uh we've hit masterpiece level if we didn't already hit it with eugenie this should convince you that you're watching your first uh franco absolute balls out masterpiece and it is 1970s only shot a couple months after Eugenie. Vampiros Lesbos. Nope. You have probably heard of this movie. The soundtrack uh, is one of the most known things about this movie. And I just want to say right off top, there we've been talking with Bruno Nicolai and all this stuff. The soundtracks are something that I feel like we're kind of almost like freezing past with Franco. Like, the music in Franco becomes so important. It is very much a part of the movie in that it has to be, he's trying to engage, he's trying to sync up the music with the visuals in a way that is very forward thinking. I don't know any filmmakers that were doing stuff with music at this level where it's not just the score is guiding the action, the score is the action. Well, and this much and this little, you know, exactly when to do and not to do. The only like shit I even think of a little is some Japanese new wave, a little bit tipping into pinky yeah. films. Um, yeah, they had those stuff, Takamitsu scores that were. Yeah, like that stuff does a little but again. I, I think he's I think it's pretty unique. Yeah. And this is oh, this score is just it's incredible. So. He has now uh, left Harry Allen Towers, and he is now going to make a series of films with a producer named Arthur Browner. Yep. And Browner is 
we're not going to his history. Maybe we'll go into it on the uh, on the Patreon. We'll go into all these producers. You should mention the other movie he produced for Jess long ago that I will convince you on someday. He was a small co-producer on Lucky the Inscrutable. God. Continue. <laughs> Christ. No, I take it all back. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Yep. No, Browner, uh, all right, fine. But Browner also one of the wealthiest people alive is how one Frank of the wealthiest. This dude is like like scary shit. This dude's into some yeah, he is has access to some things that you'll never. I mean, he's he's probably has access to true libertinage like places. Yeah. Like this is a guy that has more money than most people do in the entire world. I mean, he owns like most uh like west germany like it's 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 crazy it's it's crazy but that being said that being said jess always said that he was a very smart guy with incredible taste and um just a guy that let him cook he just said brother have at it and he even committed to make a series of films that he wanted to progressively build on each other and they were all gonna star Soledad Miranda. And the big one that they wanted to do. Oh, yeah. Well, the fi- that was supposed to be the final one? Yeah, it was supposed to be uh, Pushkin's Dare Postmeister. It was yeah. going to be the big thing they were building towards, which and would have been terrible. But I would love to. said it in Mexico? I'm like. Yeah, they were going to switch. Yeah, daytime. They're like, we'll take it out of the snow. We'll make it sunny. And I'm like, cook, buddy. Cook. Cook. Because that, yeah, that uh, that idea that Will just, Will just mentioned, <laughs> here it comes in this movie. Oh my God! So this is just basically the plot of Dracula. It is the plot of Dracula. It is. It is. But reworked so brilliantly and so fucking. I just, uh, the more I think about it, my whole life, but especially this rewatching this morning. Kind of pissed me off, House Martians. <laughs> this is uh this is this is pretty hot stuff. And it's also yeah. like if Eugenie wasn't the full ahead Franco film, this is like if anything, Eugenie and this are the first appearances yeah. of Franco, the filmmaker that we're gonna see through the rest of this. He's 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 well, he might have some pit stops along the way but well, when, when they when he stops calling the movies and starts calling them audio audio visual experiments yeah yeah I'm excited for you to watch those anyway oh, let's keep we're going. gonna get to him so so this is uh this is him being handed a decent budget to basically do whatever he wants so he does dracula but he sets it in like beautiful spain <laughs> Uh, where exactly is let me see where this is exactly shot. There's some scenes in Istanbul, I remember. Yeah, he loves Istanbul. Very clearly in Istanbul. But um the 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 one thing I know is that he had a problem with at this time is yeah, so I think it's all Istanbul, and uh he he was forced to shoot in studios uh in Germany, in Berlin. That I don't know how much he loved doing that but whatever i mean he likes it outside and he really lets in that beautiful sunlight in this movie i mean yeah i mean it's dracula but instead of 
a man going to see the male Dracula. It's a woman going to see this female vampire who starts off like a, a fucking Jeff's movie. Sees her in a striptease. Oh, it's, good. By her. it's so good. And uh, we might see this plot pop up in one of my absolute favorites of his coming up in the 80s. But uh, it might pop up 100 more times. <laughs> just, just yeah. might. <laughs> it just might. And <laughs> yeah, she starts like Dracula, uh, Soledad Miranda's smoking hot vampire is calling to this actress, uh, the Swedish actress. Her name is. Oh, I forget because I love one of the interviews I watched talking about this. Eva Stromberg. Uh, yes. Jess says in the interview, <laughs> so she's like, she's terrible at acting. Yeah. <laughs> terrible at acting, but. And then a bitch. She said she was kind of a bitch was, too. Yeah. He was like, visually though, she made a lot of sense with uh, Soledad and no one could resist Soledad. So even she was nice when she was around. <laughs> And she's a physical nice counterpoint to Soledad. Well, it's a visual. It's truly, a, it's truly a purely visual choice. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So when she, you know, comes to find Dracula in the original, you know, you got Bela Lugosi, Christopher Lee, what have you, with their candelabra coming down the stairs, being like, "Welcome." In this one, Soledad Miranda's vampire, the Queen of the Night, is. Uh, sunbathing <laughs> so he is throwing out the whole sunlight thing because yep. he does throwing not that out and they go for a swim like dracula loves water it's not that he's like come drink my wine and let me tell you about my family's battles it's let's go skinny dipping yeah let's go for so a swim they go for a swim then they sunbathe together and uh and uh, guess who shows up again as her de- brain dead manservant? It's Morpho. <laughs> Morpho's back. Guess who's back? But who's playing Morpho this time? Oh, what's his name? Oh, fuck. I had it down here. Oh, Michael Burling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's in there. And he. And who, else, who, who else is playing a weird little servant <laughs> oh we'll get we'll get to that i i want to come we'll cap on that because that's still the most beguiling thing about the movie um <laughs> i mean trouble with self-love yeah oh my lord so <laughs> again going through these famous scenes like where Dracula, when jonathan harker is been bitten the night before and he wakes up and he's like, what happened to me? Oh, my God. And he goes down through the Dracula's crypts and he uncovers the coffin that has Dracula sleeping. And that's where he's like, holy shit, I'm dealing with a vampire. And he basically like jumps out of a window and is found days later. In this, though, she's wandering around this estate and she doesn't find Soledad <laughs> chilling in a, in a coffin. She is in her state, her like. Uh, asleep uh, dead somewhere state floating on her back in a pool with her eyes wide open blood dripping from her mouth like when you know whoever finds Christopher Lee in one of these coffins or when uh, Max Shrek's Nosferatu is found in his coffin now it's just floating in a pool (laughs) water it's just amazing the confidence to do this and be like, you know what? Not only am I going to make a, a beautiful movie about a gay vampire, 
I'm also going to throw out every single rule that anyone cares about related to vampires. And guess what? It's going to be the best one. <laughs> and, it, and it absolutely is. I mean, this is, uh, you know, I love that uh, as much as I love a movie like Daughters of Darkness, there's a power to this movie that is given because of its playfulness. Mm-hmm. That is, and because of its, I think, complete lack of silly, but lack of chains at this point. Because yeah. like right, Harry Kumel, he didn't have an experience like with Mr. Towers. Um, and I love Daughter's Struggle. I think it's an amazing movie. But this movie feels so much like a healing. And that's, I think, what gives it everything. Because you have Jess healing from dealing with all this stuff starting to come into his true self and you have Soledad going, I'm going to give this one more shot and I want to do it with this strange little dude who makes these no budget movies who has this lesbian vampire idea, but I'm going to see if I can like run the world through this stuff. And it's so powerful. No, <laughs> it, it's so powerful. It's, it's so powerful. And this movie even beats a lot of these, uh, sort of uh, Carmilla adaptations to the screen. I mean, it beats Daughters of Darkness, but it also beats Roy Ward Baker's The Vampire Lovers. Yep. And The Blood Splattered Bride, which is vampire vampire adjacent, but it's definitely a lesbian story. These all appear after Vampiros Lesbos. Does does Roland get any in before this? I can't remember the timeline. believe he does but they're um he was born for that so <laughs> we'll get into why people uh like to confuse the two at some point but yeah, i guess we'll rape of the a whole episode oh we will yeah that'll be a patreon no so yeah i mean uh rape of the vampires 1968 yeah but that doesn't get super into the lesbianism the nude vampire does yeah it's the same year okay so yeah it's i mean it doesn't matter but well they might have been making the nude vampire and uh vampires lesbos might have been shooting at the exact same time oh i like that yeah i mean they kind of came out i mean well he definitely did franco did not see the genre (laughs) for once we can confirm yes he was shooting when when he came out the movie came out in the middle. Yeah, the nude vampire came out in the middle of the shooting of this. This movie didn't really premiere until the f- next year in '71. So I guess well, we'll the- get into it. even if it had come out first, it wouldn't matter because guess what? Most of Jess Franco and Jean Owens movies are actually not that similar. So yeah, they're not. <laughs> and we'll get to that. But this is also like one of these things that like it it doesn't get seen till like 71, but eh, I could see a lot of these Italians seeing this movie. I can see our hero of ours, Mr. Lucio Fulci seeing this movie before he makes a lizard in a woman's skin. I would think so. I would there's think a, so. There's a loosening of structure and a formal playfulness that is beginning to emerge here, which is very, it's infectious. It's, it's uh it's it's signaling a different way that you can make these kinds of movies like you know he's going to spend the rest of his career kind of reworking these horror ideas that 
is probably a re- reaction to all those years chained to Harry Allen Towers and having to make these like strict literary adaptations where he just wants to like he wants to let his id fly and it flies in this one so much so that he uh well i mean literally dr seward shows up in it again from dracula so she's she plays a victim of dracula this is very much technically in the dracula lore she tells a story about how dracula bit her and gave her this he saves dracula saves her from rape too she's about to be raped by a soldier and then dracula stops it and then gives her gives her a little bite on the neck so she kind of inherits uh dracula's estate but this is where where franco's cooking is and letting his id fly is where he decides to cast himself as the uh as the manservant of this like hotel that is trying to warn her from like going to the to the island much like Jonathan Harker or Renfield in the movie adaptations, they get warned like, no, don't go there. So, <laughs> but this time he's like, don't go there. And also meet me in the cellar later. And then he gets cut off and you're like, oh, he's going to tell her something very important. She goes to the cellar immediately following that scene. And it turns out he's just torturing women down there. Yep. In a way that is so dreamlike, because who the hell doesn't know that these women are screaming and being bound and like? Because also the doors open. It's not the door to the cellar is not even closed. She just walks around the corner and is like, "What the fuck?" (laughs) And that will pop up again. What do you make of this? Because part this makes me this makes me cry. Now that we've been doing this journey, this made me cry today. And I know that sounds silly, but hear me out. Twisted, but go ahead. Well. Jess is playing this character and yes, he's furthering the things we've been talking about, right? What it means to want to make this stuff and want to watch this stuff, yada, yada. But more importantly, he is losing his wife to Alzheimer's. He is losing the one person that understood him, that worked with him, that loved him for the crazy freak he was. And they created together. Life was great. And guess what takes her? A mental illness, right? She's going crazy. And that's what his character, spoiler, if you haven't seen this movie, don't listen for a second. But that's why his character finally wails and screams and why he hates Soledad so much. He hates Dracula so much because Dracula bit and ruined the mind of his wife, his partner. And so he's lost her to this mythical thing that doesn't exist. And so, believe it or not, even again, how crazy and gross they get and how silly they are, the torture scenes in this, uh, I genuinely, I I, I cried because I'd never thought about it because I'd never done this timeline. But that's, I think that's him. Because I don't think he would be, he doesn't strike me as someone who goes to therapy. And I don't think he's talking to his friends about it. I think this is him, the way he can get it out, his feelings about losing his wife to Alzheimer's and just, you know, watching someone die. Is this? I think you just hit the nail on the head there. It never, I'd never even thought about it. I always was just like, this is so funny. I love that Franco wanted to be the silly, gross, tortury dude. But yeah, this morning it hit me like a ton of fucking bricks. And I cried a lot watching Vampire's Lesbos, which I can't believe happened. But here we are. I was kind of just surrendered to how dream nightmarish it feels, how it just kind of pops up out of nowhere. But 
like Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, this is, I think you're right. I think that's exactly what's going on there because it's, it's there for a purpose because it, it's, it makes its point. Yeah. Uh, twice. If he, if he didn't screen that, right? Like if, if he, if he didn't write all his lines to build up to that, I don't, I think I'd feel like I was stretching. But the fact that he does put those lines in, because as we talked about, when he's not being forced to do Harry scripts, Jess only has people talk when he, has something for them to say and so this first movie of freedom right he's not going to say anything he doesn't want to and screaming about losing her to losing her to insanity pretty wild yeah damn (laughs) oh i (laughs) think it's already been crazy you know we'll just start winding this up here because we could continue to talk about this movie forever it's yep. one of the most extraordinary sensual experiences you'll ever you'll ever come across and uh it's some of the hottest soledad yep. has ever looked i mean this movie captures soledad's beauty in in such a captivating way it, it yeah this is this is uh, as good as it well, gets her eyes her eyes cuz that's the most important part of a successful vampire character in any movie in my opinion is eyes yeah. They have to be able to, you know, do anything with just the power of their eyes. And yeah. good God, Soledad like a... could stop a war with those eyes. And it's not like there's a a plot really happening in this movie. <laughs> you know, it's like I mean, it kind of is, but it kind of he's he's finally not finally because it, it happens before this along the way a little bit. But it's I feel like it's finally perfected the art of technically there's a plot but everything is just about the visuals and how you feel them and they also tell the story and they tell you the plot too but the like on paper plot doesn't matter yeah yeah absolutely i mean so much so that when she's uh describing her dreams to paul Mueller. And uh, the camera looks at what he's writing down, and it's just a, a little goofy doodling. doodling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which also, again, feelings. Maybe Jess did go to a therapist, or maybe his wife did, and maybe he's suspicious of the diagnosis. Who knows? There's. It's just all the all the doctor shit. He's really mad. Sad. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. So yeah. This is uh, him kind of getting those avant-garde tendencies to kind of not be as jarring as they are in Nightmares Come at Night and just kind of makes it a little more palatable and an easier experience to get lost in. And the Manfred Hubler and Siegfried Schwab score is, uh, I mean, it it does a lot of work in this movie, but it doesn't have to because – He's engaging with this sort of gothic horror, which does appear in certain parts of the movie, and then it's juxtaposed against like these sunny, sunlit vistas and like open air. Mm-hmm. Um, this is yeah, this is as weird as it's going to get in the world of gothic horror, especially European gothic horror. Because, I mean, I guess if we're being honest, the the, the earliest movie for this is uh, 1960s Blood and Roses by. Roger Vidim, which gonna be honest, not a big fan of that movie. Well, I'd look, I I go back and forth, but I think at large, I'm glad Roger Vadim existed, and I think he was kind of a shitty filmmaker. 
Yeah, he's a shitty filmmaker. Blood and Roses leaves a lot to be desired. Well, he had great ideas always, but his execution's not so good. Yeah, it it really really isn't. And this is, I mean, this really is the only movie, that's the only movie preceding Vampiros Lesbos out there. I mean, I bet there's there's got to be more, but no, maybe no, not. not. None of the European variety of that time, like oh, this new wave of horror coming through. I mean, you have the original Dracula's Daughter from Universal that definitely touches on themes of lesbianism, but yeah, yeah. I mean, Blood and Roses is the only thing that really comes to mind. I mean, yeah, I can't think of anything else. So, this is a pretty important movie here, and. uh don't worry, we'll get to Franco's own adaptation of Dracula's Daughter very soon. And Oh, I can't wait. I can't <laughs> wait. The strangeness of that movie. That was one of my early Franco's. That, that was probably one of... Hmm. Yeah, I probably saw that one pretty early, too. And it gave me sort of a similar reaction I had to the Dracula one, but not in the way that, like, Dracula is a failure. It just, when we get to Dracula's daughter, it does not deliver what you want from a movie called Dracula's daughter. That's okay. Cause it has something else in mind. As we said at the start, Franco is not a filmmaker that gives you necessarily what you want, but it gives you what you need. Like the Rolling Stones said. <laughs> they, they wish their career was as solid as his. <laughs> this is a good place to leave it because we'll continue down this path with Soledad and uh, Arthur Browner and and yeah this next one's gonna be fucking yummy it's gonna start cooking pretty I'm gonna gonna have to unbutton my pants when we do these now because this all these movies are so yummy it's like fucking Thanksgiving over here yeah yeah you get like little turkey (laughs) legs and All right. Well, we'll catch uh, we'll catch you next time when we do our best to try to condense more thoughts. And uh, we stayed on target with this one, but uh, pretty good. We're just gonna keep getting better. It's training. It's the it's one of the things I hate the most about our generation and surrounding years is people love to say they can't do things just because they don't want to do things. And you know what? We don't want to keep condensing because there's so much fun to talk about. But we can, and it's only going to be better for it because we're going to keep working hard just for you. Yeah, and you know what? You can sound off. You can hit us up on Instagram, Twitter. If you're a Patreon member, you can message us directly. And tell us, what do you think? Do you like like how we're doing it? Would you prefer us sticking to six episodes and releasing two a week? We'll put it in your hands, how you'd like us to handle this, because this is obviously a very unwieldy load to to carry here and try to like sift through. So just let us know how you how you think we should handle it. If you like how we're doing it, we'll do that. But we're going to try to be merciful and uh, so we can get to other things. Eventually, we can't have this turn into the Jess Franco podcast. We got it. We got it. There'll be more coming soon. So. We love y'all. We love you all. Until next time.